We're in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, looking at verses 13 onwards. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to that spot. I think we would all agree that one of the darkest and most mysterious valleys of human existence has to be the problem of pain and suffering. David Ryan, in the past few weeks, spoke of enduring and finding hope in suffering. And today we continue with that same theme. Suffering as Christians in a hostile world. British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who became a Christian before his death, said late in life, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful, with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. The only thing that teaches one what life's about is suffering. In his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, Philip Yancey writes that most people would say, God made a good world with one mistake, and that's pain. He went on to write another book called Why? The Question That Never Goes Away. And as part of his research in writing this new book, he'd been reading some of the books by the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and all the best-selling New York Times atheistic authors. And it suddenly dawned on him one day that there's a question that's much harder than where is God when it hurts? And that is, where is no God when it hurts? So when we wonder why, Peter's a great guy to ask he writes about suffering 21 times in 1 Peter. So looking at 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Beloved, those who are deeply loved by God. That's huge. It's key to everything Peter wants us to know. He's saying, God loves us deeply and profoundly, and because he loves us so deeply, we're not to be surprised when we suffer as Christians. Don't think it's weird or bizarre or unusual when you suffer. But the truth is, when we suffer, isn't one of our first emotions that we think it's strange? We're surprised. In fact, we think we don't deserve it because most of us want to avoid suffering at all costs. I think the intensity of the trials is what often takes us by surprise. And Peter calls the trials a fiery ordeal. And that word fiery brought Bryce Courtney's book, The Four Fires, to mind. I read it years ago, and in it he, he gives the description of bushfires in Australia. And he writes, the thing about fires most people don't realize is the noise 
it's deafening. So even if you shout, you can't be heard three feet away. You can never get used to the fury of it. It's, it's like a mighty roar of anger that just keeps going. And some of the trials we're called to face are so intense, so painful, and so furious, so very fiery. Peter's words to the exiles were timely as they came just before Nero began his reign of terror, which went on for 200 years. And during this reign of terror, Christians became scapegoats for Rome's problems. Some were used as human torches to light up the imperial gardens. Others were thrown to savage animals and torn to shreds. And others were crucified. In fact, Peter was later on crucified. In fact, he was crucified upside down. How awful. So when Peter wrote these words, listen to how they would have sounded to a Christian in Rome at that time. Beloved, don't be surprised by suffering and don't be scared by it. Don't panic, but praise instead. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. It's so hard for us to connect God's overwhelming love with suffering, isn't it? Sometimes we may begin to wonder where is God in all of this? Let's face it, none of us like hard times, and hard times are especially hard to handle when it seems like you've done everything right and you suffer anyway. You try to live a godly life, but you suffer one health problem after another. While you'll know many who abuse their bodies and are never sick for a day. You follow all the correct procedures, but your boss blames you for a problem that was beyond your control, while the other staff member who didn't follow the procedures and lied about it gets praised. You invest countless hours in trying to help someone get their life back on track and follow the Lord. And they turn against you and they tell awful lies about you behind your back. When you've done all you know that is right, but things seem to be going against you, a disturbing thought creeps in and you begin to wonder if somehow you're out of the will of God. Or maybe there's some hidden sin in your life that you need to confess. Have you been there? I have. But Peter wants us to know that the suffering we go through is often according to the will of God. The idea that if you're in the center of God's will, you're not going to suffer is simply not biblical. Being in the center of God's will will mean that you are right, you may be right in the center of suffering. I'll say that again. Being in the center of God's will may well mean you are right in the center of suffering. The thing is, trials and sufferings we face aren't being thrown together. They don't just happen haphazardly. 
because God manages each one of the sufferings that come our way. And as I've matured in the Lord, and I've obviously got a long way to go, I've learned one thing that helps me when I'm going through a really difficult time. And that is to see myself hidden in Christ, who is hidden in God, and seeing in my mind's eye the suffering, the pain, the fiery darts, having to pass through Christ before they get to me. I recall our pastor in South Africa when he was only 49 years of age, being diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease. And he stood up from the pulpit to let the church know. And he was so calm. He was so peaceful. And he said, everything is father-filtered. When the outlook is bad, keep the uplook. You see, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what does that mean for you and me? Well, God permits and measures out the suffering even though he takes no pleasure and finds no joy in seeing us suffer. And of course, we don't understand his purposes at first. But what we need to understand is that it is always, always for our good and his glory. And this is a solid truth that needs to be ingrained, it needs to be woven into our thinking. Peter says, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. And if we're insulted because of the name of Christ, we are blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon us. Peter knew all about suffering because of the name of Christ. If you remember when we were doing Acts, we read in Acts 5, the apostles, who were Peter and John at the time, left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. You see, our sufferings join us with Jesus in a way that nothing else can. All of our Bible study and reading all of our worship and our marvelous singing and praise that we offer, the money we give, the countless times we share our faith with others, others, that all leads us closer to him. But Peter wants us to understand that there's nothing that moves us closer to God, closer to Christ, than when we go through hard times. It's not that suffering in and of itself brings us closer to Christ. It's what suffering does in us and through us. When we're flat on our faces, when we've been knocked down time and time again, we find God at work. Because suffering purifies us. It weeds out of us all the rubbish, all the dross. And it's got the amazing ability to humble us. And it makes us dependent on God like nothing else will. 
Remember when Paul pleaded for his thorn in the flesh to be removed and, and God answered, my grace is enough. It's sufficient. It's all you need. And then Paul said, therefore I will rejoice and exult in my suffering because when I am weak, then I am strong. The thing that's so remarkable, so interesting, so incredible, is that God's power and his strength seems to be attracted to human weakness. It's when our power runs out that his power kicks in. The good news is when God brings suffering into our lives, he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us unassisted. He gives us sufficient grace for the trials. And even though that grace may not remove the pain, God enables us to trust him through the pain. He's right there with us in the deep pain places of our pain and suffering. And God intends that our sufferings move us from where we are to where Christ is, and we're to look for and experience his presence in our sufferings. And of course, this takes a willingness on our part. We have to determine, we have to will to take our eyes off of the pain we're experiencing and redirect our vision to him. Peter makes it clear that suffering is a grace from God. What is a grace? A grace is a favor. It's a grace given to us now to prepare us for living forever. Have you ever regarded suffering as a favor? I'm not sure I have. It requires a shift in my thinking. The other thing we need to note is what Peter tells us in verses 15 to 18. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a busybody. I must say, every time I've read that, I've wanted to giggle. I don't know why. But anyway, however, if we suffer as Christians, we're not to be ashamed. Instead, we're to praise God that we bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be to those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's pretty clear here that if we do wrong, we should expect to suffer. If we do the crime, we've got to do the time, right? It's interesting that amongst the list of murderers and, and, and criminals and thieves, he's got that word busybody. And most of us probably wouldn't have put busybodies on that same list, would we? I don't think I would have anyway. Why do you think he did that? Well, it's because he views busybodies as doing as much damage in people's lives as a murderer. I'm sure we've all encountered a busybody at some stage. That person who can't keep their nose out of your business. That person who loves to gossip and spread rumors about people and in so doing, create division. That person who cannot resist 
giving you a piece of unsolicited advice. What do you think Peter means by it's a time for judgment to begin at the house of God? Well, we as believers, we don't get judged. We, we, we're saved by grace. We're set free from judgment. Praise God. But we will be judged as we live because we're judged by the people in the world. And the judgment we receive come from a God-hating, Christ-rejecting, unbelieving, sinful world. But the good news is, that God uses those judgments to refine us, to purify us, and to discipline us, to chasten us, and ultimately so that his name is glorified. And Matthew alluded earlier on to the road that we walk on as believers has been difficult, and Jesus called the gate a narrow gate, and he said the road we walk on is narrow and difficult. And so if the road we walk on is narrow and difficult, we can expect to be persecuted. And the only weird thing would be is if we're not persecuted. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verse 9, and when I was looking up these cross-references, it struck me that Matthew 24 is, is, is a chapter that deals with the last days, you know. Be aware when all these things start happening, earthquakes and all the things that go on, you know. And in that same chapter, he says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And of course, in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And Paul said, as you may well remember, we must go through many trials or tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And he said those words just after he'd just about been stoned to death in Lystra. And that word tribulation that Paul uses comes from a Greek word that describes grinding pressure. It's a word that was used for the grinding of wheat. And in the ancient world, they would place the kernels of wheat between these two enormous millstones that would just grind and grind and grind and crush. And there was no chance of relief. And that's what tribulation means. And that's what Christ has promised us if we follow him. But you know, Jesus didn't stop at tribulation. He went on to say that some may have to die for his name's sake. And of course, believers in other parts of the world understand this far better than we do. To be honest, the closest I've come to persecution that I can recall is when I first became a Christian and um, I was on fire for the Lord. And I remember an aunt of mine saying to me, Oh, Obi, you're way too fanatical. And then um, I worked at the Reserve Bank at the time, and the girl that had led me to the Lord, well, obviously worked there with me, and um, she would disciple me, and during our lunch breaks, we would read the Bible together, and she would sort of step me through the Bible. And I remember, I can't remember his name, actually. He came into the office, big, striding man, and he came in and he said, huh. If I find another Bible in this office, I'm going to throw it into the rubbish bin. 
I can't remember how we arranged it, but uh, we continued with our Bible studies. We just did it a bit more discreetly. But the good news is the mysterious ways of God, praise his name, is that this chap, about a year later, walked through the front portals of our church, the very same church that I went to, and he'd become a Christian. So there you know. <laughs> you go. Um, however, if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I read an alarming statistic. Um, according to Open Doors World Watch List 2022, in 2021 alone, more Christians were detained or killed for their faith, and more churches were attacked or closed than the year before. 360 million Christians one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution for their faith. 2021 saw a 24% increase in Christians killed for their faith. They were martyred because of their witness. They died because they said what they believed about who they believed in. That is a huge challenge to me. Of course, this extreme persecution is foreign to us, but we're becoming increasingly aware of the growing intolerance to the Christian faith. And it seems to me that the name of Christ is increasingly hated in the world. They don't want to hear it. One can mention one goes to church, and that's absolutely fine. You can say, I believe in God, and they say, great, you've got your God. I've got my God. But tell them that Jesus is the only way to the only God and see the reaction you get. The world despises the name of Jesus. To many, he's simply a swear word. At the time of the writing of this letter, there was a cult of Caesar worship which helped unify the many nations Rome ruled. And as the gospel began to spread, the followers of Jesus were given a nickname by the Romans. They were called Christianos, or Christ followers. It was a derogatory term. It was an insult. And... Uh, these Christ followers were persecuted because they refused to bow to the name of, Jesus, of Caesar. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so the lines were drawn very early in the sand. Caesar or Christ? I read another article the other day, and that was by, as I was preparing this uh, talk, of course, um, on the Barnabas Aid website, and if you don't know, the Barnabas Aid is an organization that works to provide hope and aid for suffering Christians throughout the world. And the article said, Christianity is returning to the situation of the early church in the Roman Empire. Believers will be required to, figuratively speaking, make their sacrifice of incense to the emperor and the pagan gods or face the consequences if they do not. Secularism marks the return of the Roman situation 
in which the state was the arbiter of morality and religion a purely private matter? What if, in fact, it comes down to this in our day, Caesar or Christ? What will you do if they threaten you because of your faith? Peter's answer is very clear. He says, let him not be ashamed. I think for Peter this was very personal because he remembers that night not too far back when Jesus was arrested and he denied his Lord three times. And that shame that he had to carry because of his denial. That word ashamed means dishonor. Don't do anything to dishonor the name of the Lord. Instead, he tells us to praise God that we're counted worthy to suffer for his name. You see, if Jesus sees fit to lay his cross on our backs, we're not to be ashamed to carry it. Following Jesus carries the cost. I'm not sure that I have fully experienced that cost in my life as yet. Have you ever wondered what you'll do in the hour of final trial? I wonder. I wonder how I'll handle intense persecution. Will my faith stand up to the test? Peter says in verses 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is hugely encouraging, isn't it? He tells us that in the hour of unusual threat, whether it's insults or whether it's death, there will be a spirit of glory and of God resting on us. And I believe that God will give us special help in the hour of crisis if we suffer as Christians. I don't mean that he's, he's, he's separate or he's absent from our other sufferings. I'm just pointing out that he makes special mention he goes out of his way to say to those who suffer for the name of Christ. It's them, it's us. Should we be suffering for the name of Christ? We will experience a, new, a unique resting on us, the spirit of glory and of God. On April the 5th, 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and imprisoned by the Gestapo for resisting the Nazi regime in, in Germany. And he had spoken out against the Nazis for several years and eventually it caught up with him and he was imprisoned in Buchenwald concentration camp. And it was two weeks before the end of World War II when he found himself facing certain death. And so it was on, on Sunday, April the 8th, he led a service for the other prisoners and short, shortly after that final prayer, two civilians walked into the room and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And everyone knew what this meant, it meant the gallows. And an English survivor uh, who was in the room describes the moment and he said, he took me aside and said, This is the end. 
But for me, it is the beginning of life. There is this doctor who witnessed his death, called him brave and composed and devout to the very end. Through the half-open door, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer still in prison clothes, kneeling in fervent prayer to the Lord his God. The devotion and evident conviction of being heard that I saw in the prayer of this intensely captivating man moved me to the very depth. This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. What makes a man facing certain death talk like that? Where do you find faith like that? I believe he discovered that living hope that goes beyond the grave. Bonhoeffer had his eyes, just as those in Hebrews 11 had their eyes fixed on a better country, on a heavenly one. And Peter is calling us to rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And the question each one of us face is will we be rejoicing in that hour? Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust or commit their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If we commit our souls to him, our faithful creator, I believe we will. That word commit is a banking term and it means to deposit something for safekeeping. I'm going to deposit my trust. I don't understand what's happening in the world around me. This is so hard. This is so painful. I don't want it. I don't get it. I want answers. They're not coming. So what am I going to do? I'm going to deposit my trust in God's bank. Our creator has created our souls for his glory. And he is faithful to that glory and to all who love it and live for it. Not one of us sitting here this morning knows the sorrows that may meet us tomorrow or that we're sure to meet along the way if Jesus tarries. We don't know what hardships God will call us to walk through. But even though we don't know them, we can prepare for them. And the way we prepare for trials and afflictions is by gaining Jesus now. It won't minimize the pain. I wish it would. It doesn't. But we'll know even in the darkest night that Jesus is our God, that he's our rock and treasure, that he's enough. And so how do we prepare for that? How do we prepare for our sufferings that may come along the path tomorrow? We cultivate our love for Jesus 
today. We move towards the same perspective that Paul had when he said everything is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So this morning we can thank the Lord for the balance of pain and joy in our lives. We can praise the Lord for his wisdom in allowing our suffering. We can praise him because he filters everything through his good and kind and benevolent fingers for our good and for his glory. Shall we pray? Father, none of us know what tomorrow holds, what suffering you'll allow in our lives. What we do know is that when we walk through the valley of deep darkness, you are a shepherd. When we lie face down, overpowered by enemies too strong for us, you're our redeemer. When we feel small and vulnerable and afflicted in a dangerous world and we find ourselves suffering according to your will, we're to entrust our souls to you, our faithful creator. You are our faithful and mighty God who walks with us, who when we look behind us, you're there. When we look up ahead, your reassuring presence is everywhere. Father, would you help us to embrace you in all of our suffering so that your glory may be displayed through us, knowing that the day will come when the pieces of every broken heart will be put back together. When every wound seen and unseen will be bound up for eternity, right now we see through a glass darkly. But one day, we will see, see you face to face. Would you help us to keep looking upward, knowing that though we may suffer now, one day we will reign with you. Amen.